This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Not to be too much of, of a homer, too parochial, but we're very focused on New York City and what's happening here because we remember all too well what happened earlier mm-hmm. in this pandemic. Let's check in with Dr. David Levy. He is Chief Executive Officer of EHE Health. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Uh, Dr. Levy, really nice to have you with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. So let's talk about New York. Let's get right down to it because you're seeing the same numbers and probably more numbers than we are. You're also looking at them with a much more sophisticated eye, certainly, than I am. What do we need to know? What should we be worried about? What should we not be worried about as we see this new data? Well, it's important to understand that um, uh, it's not unexpected that we should get spikes and we should get focal outbreaks, particularly since the only tools we have at hand are what I call public health 101, namely masks, washing your hands, social distance, testing, uh, contact tracing, and quarantine. And frankly, uh, if people relax from those disciplines, then we're going to likely see focal outbreaks. And I think, as you see, uh, and uh, and has been highlighted by both the governor and the mayor, some of these outbreaks are happening in particular neighborhoods. And likely at the bottom of it is people who have relaxed on those disciplines. Well, and it's interesting. I wanted you to talk a little bit about what you guys are seeing at your company specifically in terms of virus trends uh, and other healthcare trends, pandemic-related or other. Right. So, uh, you know, what we've been focused on not only is getting our folks back to work and helping other companies get their folks back to work uh, and keeping people informed on kind of what we call the Public Health 101 and, and frankly, cautiously optimistic through the uh, uh, emerging new technologies that we believe by Q1 of next year will really make a dent in this, and that's basically rapid testing, antivirals, and vaccines. We think we're going to see the waning of this and the economy coming back certainly by the end of the first quarter of next year. Now, I'm saying that cautiously, optimistically. Uh, You know, we call epidemiology uh, the exact science of probabilities. But in the end, we feel pretty comfortable about that. But we're we're now focused on is what's going to happen after the epidemic. And what's pretty uh, shocking is some emerging evidence, particularly from some of the large health payers. And I'm referring specifically to a webcast we did in conjunction with United Health Group last week, where we're seeing upward of 50 and 60 percent of reduction of preventive health and maintenance visits for people who have put off all of that health care because they're staying home or because their state has gone into lockdown. And there is going to be a very significant accumulation of undetected cancers, undetected uh, uh, cardiovascular disease that is going to start reemerging in 2021 and 2022. And I think people are going to have to be, we should start thinking about now how to be prepared for that. And that's simply because people just aren't going for checkups, and so things that would be detected in the normal course of business just aren't? 
That's exactly right. So let me tell you some statistics for New York City. Wellness visits down 56%. Diabetes screening down 61%. Breast cancer screening down 68%. Colon cancer screening down 75%. So we have a whole cohort of maybe close to a year of people getting all this stuff done who aren't getting it done. Well, you know, just because we don't do the testing doesn't mean they're not going to have the disease. And ultimately, we're going to start seeing all of this backlog start to come up and, uh, at a later stage and rear its ugly head, frankly, in the years 2021, 2022, and beyond. So where's the healthcare system helping individuals? Because I think what happened was healthcare systems just shut down and basically would only take COVID, you know, patients are dealing with COVID. And I, I understand it because these systems were strained. But where is the healthcare community, you know, on a large scale, this is a war, this is a health war, you know, coming together and saying, okay, this facility facility is going to be for, you know, routine checkups and routine conditions and making sure that we're doing, you know, colon screening and, and breast cancer screening and all of that. Where is that happening? Especially if we go into a second wave or as we were talking with some of our, our, our market folks, a th- possible third wave. So, Carol, that's a great point. Look, by necessity, when you have, like we had in New York, an overwhelming number of cases, you have to focus on the people who are very ill and who are dying. There's no question about that. But as you move through uh, the stages where the hospitals now have capacity and the healthcare system has capacity, you know, people are reopening all over the country. Primary care, preventive care, health systems are reopening and trying to encourage their patients to come back. You see ads all over the place. The problem actually isn't the health systems and the, and, and, and the, uh, and, and the providers. The problem is people are afraid. Uh, they don't understand that they're not going to get COVID in a hospital or in a doctor's office that has taken care of and made the environment as safe as possible. They're going to get COVID likely if they show up in bars, in crowds, and they're not wearing masks and they're not social distancing. It's not a, it's not a well-controlled hospital or it's not a well-controlled doctor's office where they're going to get it. And, so, and, and frankly, people are afraid. They're afraid to use the public transport system. They're really afraid to step out and start reengaging in these behaviors. And, and candidly, at EHE Health, that's what we're up to. We're up to reaching out to these people and helping them step out and get back into preventive well, health care. We talked about preventive health care. And, you know, Jason brought up the point, uh, Dr. David, uh, Dr. Levy, that, you know, are we seeing kind of a rethink when it comes to corporate health plans and just health care in general that it is becoming more about preventive. We know it needs to be, but are we seeing any kind of concrete steps that are taking us there? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So just as a backdrop, uh, we published a paper with our uh, uh, colleagues at uh, the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia and IBM uh, Watson Health in March, showing that despite Obamacare covering 100% of preventive visits, only about 30% of people go, and when they go, they don't even get the right stuff. Now, the interesting thing about the COVID pandemic is that it preferentially hurts and kills people who have diseases of lifestyle, overweight, high blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And in fact, the mortality is about 10 times uh, the expected mortality when you have one of those lifestyle diseases and you get admitted to the hospital uh, for COVID. And so what employers are now becoming to, are now coming to understand that having invested properly in prevention, you can actually immediately reduce the comorbidity effect of the mortality 
of, uh, of COVID-19. And in fact, when we looked at up to 40,000 of our patients, we saw that when they came in for routine annual preventive visits, they had half the prevalence of those risk factors. Mm-hmm. So I think this epidemic has been really interesting in getting employers focused once again on getting everybody in for prevention and getting health maintenance finally to where it needs to be, namely for everybody. So then, Dr. Levy, how do we do that? I mean, is it going to come down to smart, candidly, cost-conscious, but also health-conscious and employee-conscious employers forcing the system to change? Because the system seems doesn't seem to have the right economic incentives in place, I dare say, right now to achieve what you're talking about. Right. I mean, now healthcare purchasing is all about the immediate return of investment and the reduction of healthcare claims. That's a very short-sighted approach. Those employers who are interested in the retention of talent and optimal productivity, those are the employees, and frankly, who are our customers who say, wait a minute, we need to look at the entire balance sheet of good health, not just on healthcare claims, but on productivity, on retention, engagement, reduction in short-term disability, long-term disability, and all of those things. And that's where the rewards are very, very big. But you're absolutely right. It is very difficult to convince folks who are buying healthcare in the moment to have a longer view because it's really, you know, a, a year to year kind of a view on, you know, what's my healthcare going to cost as opposed to the long view on really what's optimal healthcare look like and optimal productivity. All right. So one thing you could change right now or get, co- you know, corporate programs or corporations to change in terms of how they think about healthcare for their employees that would be more about preventive rather than, oh my God, crisis, we got to do something. Um, what would you do? Well, now's no better a time because, uh, you know, I, I, I use this expression, COVID compresses time. So today, somebody for diabetes, you don't, you know, you may have had, well, let's, let's say last year with diabetes, you may have had 10 or 20 years to worry about if they were going to die of the complications of diabetes. Well, with COVID around, they could die tomorrow. And so now is, now is the absolute perfect time to get involved in prevention because it's not even an investment for the next 10 or 20 years. It's an investment for today because with this pandemic and with all of these um, uh, people potentially exposed to something that could kill them tomorrow with one of these lifestyle illnesses, invest right now, no better time. That's my point of view. All right. Well, here's hoping. Uh, I mean, I think I think you've sold us, uh, Dr. David Levy. We certainly believe (laughs) in uh, preventive medicine. And listen, I think more and more companies are thinking about this. You know, we talk about COVID really being the great accelerant. uh, And I really liked your phraseology there that COVID compresses time. We certainly uh, have felt that in many ways. And it feels like it is reimagining, forcing us to reimagine, Carol, a lot of different industries. Dr. David Levy is the CEO of EHE Health. He joined us on the phone from New York City. Great context. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Two of our faves on the line now, and this is a story. It's timely. It's well-reported. So many things that we always ascribe to both Business Week and to this reporter, Sean Donnan, senior trade and globalization reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us from Maryland. His story is a fantastic preview, a different sort of preview of what we're going to see tonight because it takes us right to the site of the debate. Sean is with us along with Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. So, Joel, this is a piece that you can find online and on the Bloomberg terminal. Tee it up for us. Uh, So Sean has spent um, a fair amount of time going to places um, that I think are are really 
important um, in part for the election, but also in part of the the bigger story that is sort of upon America right now. And Cleveland has actually figured into that uh, reporting a lot. This is sort of part two of a Cleveland uh, series that he's been working on, and it's specifically about the Cleveland Clinic, which is sort of a renowned uh, medical center. Um, but what's actually been interesting, and this kind of gets right to the heart of, of Sean's story, is as the clinic has thrived, basically the black neighbors and the black neighborhood that surrounds the Cleveland cl Clinic has actually seen its health deteriorate. Sean, pick it up from there. What, what did you discover during your reporting? Yeah, so, I mean, the Cleveland Clinic is this world-leading uh, health institution. If you are going to get a heart bypass operation, this is probably where you want to go. It's the place where they really perfected it in the 1960s, and they've built a whole fortune, uh, a real uh, thriving business on the back of this. The Cleveland Clinic last year had $10.5 billion in revenues. Uh, it's going to open a new uh, hospital in London later this year. It's also in the Middle East. It's opening a new uh, hospital in China in, in, in the next couple of years. Uh, it's become this world-renowned institution, and it's also become a great example of what people talk about when they talk about the EDS and MEDS economic development model for cities. You know, after manufacturing left a lot of cities like, like, like Cleveland, people were looking at alternatives, and, and they looked to education, and they looked to the healthcare sector, and we've seen institutions like the Cleveland Clinic thrive in recent decades. The problem is that you go to Cleveland, you step out, uh, beyond the main campus there. It's 165 acres in the middle of Cleveland, uh, and you walk not even a couple of blocks. You walk a block, and what you discover is you are in neighborhoods that have some of the highest poverty rates in the nation, and where a kid who's born today is gonna, it has a life expectancy that's 20 years less than a, a kid who is uh, who's born a 15-minute drive away. And that really, right now, in the middle of an economic crisis, illustrates this kind of American paradox that we have in terms of inequality. You can have world-beating institutions like the Cleveland Clinic, and right next door you can have black neighborhoods that are just uh, really just being left behind. There's no other way to describe it. All right. So describe to us, though, what the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic told you. I mean, I got to read the quote. Cleveland is in our name, he says, but we cannot thrive as an organization unless the communities in which we reside thrive with us. So there they see it front and center. How are they dealing with it? What are they doing to, doing to change this you know, conversation? Right. So that CEO, Tom Mihaljevic, is a, a Croatian-born heart surgeon who took over as the CEO of the clinic in 2017. And he says he has made raising up the neighborhoods around the Cleveland Clinic one of, the, one of his priorities. And he's recognizing tacitly by doing that that they haven't done enough in the past to do that. And so they're starting, and we should say they're starting slowly, to, in, to invest in different things, uh, whether it's uh, adding to their work in community health centers. And there's a big project that's about to get launched right next door to the Cleveland Clinic. It's a project called Innovation Square. It's being run by Community Development Corporation there. It's going to cost about $300 million over the next five years to really redevelop a neighborhood and bring back grocery stores, because we're talking about food deserts right, right around the clinic there, uh, bring back new, new housing there. And the Cleveland Clinic says 
because it's going to get involved in that project. We don't know how much, but we need to put that all in perspective at the same time. So we're getting this kind of goodwill from the Cleveland Clinic, but there's this $300 million project next door, and you put that in the context of of the business that is the Cleveland Clinic. Over the next five years, if they keep going the way they've been going, they're going to make something like $50 billion in revenues. That entire three $300 million project is 0.6% of revenues. They're also sitting on $1.5 billion cash in hand at the end of June, which means that they could effectively just write a check for this entire project, and, and, and they're not. So it's, it's a complicated story. It's, 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 it's tough because the, the, the institution is recognizes the problem. It clearly is trying to do something, but there's big questions about whether they're doing enough. So, Sean, synthesize this with some of the other work you've been doing, because there is a political undercurrent to all of this. You are describing one of the key economic questions of this entire presidential race and this election year in many ways. All these things that have been laid bare by not just the coronavirus crisis, but this overdue reckoning with race and inequality in America. How does this fit in with some of the other things you've seen as you've been doing reporting about some similar places that illustrate inequity in this country? Yeah, well, look, I mean, we, we know that President Trump was riding at what he considered a healthy economy into, uh, into this election year and that the pandemic upended all that. But what the pandemic really did was it shone a spotlight on these real structural inequalities in the American economy right now. And the real risk that we have right now coming out of this economic crisis is that these things are only going to get worse that they're not going to get better. I've got some more reporting coming that'll, that'll, that'll look at the housing market in Cleveland, uh, which is really interesting. Uh, but the reality is we are, and we, we sometimes forget it because a lot of us are sitting at home and we're spending time with the kids and we're learning how to bake bread. Yeah. But there's a lot of people out there who are really being damaged in this economy and, 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 and who are hurting in this economy. And in some cases, those are people who were hurting beforehand, but we kind of tended to have forgotten about. Yeah. Well, it is a phenomenal piece of reporting, as always. Sean Donnan, your body of work, I feel like, has been at the core of all of these issues that we're wrestling with and we have to keep wrestling with. So thank you for bringing this story to us. Sean Donnan, Senior Trade and Globalization Reporter for Bloomberg. He joined us on the phone from Maryland. Check out his story. It's online and on the Bloomberg Terminal today. Our thanks as well to Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm going to think about the Cleveland Clinic in a different way when I'm watching the debate tonight. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right. For this edition of Business Week Economics, let's check in with Ali Wolf, Chief Economist at Myers Research, joining us on the phone from Irvine, California. Ali, really good to have you back with us. Hi, Jason and Carol. Hi. Thank you for having me. All right. So can we make sense of the economy in like, you know, like six, seven minutes here with you? Because no pressure it's a, now, it, no pressure, but it's kind of a mess. We're trying to find the right data. We're dealing with a potential second wave and a presidential election that's throwing all sorts of headlines at us. What do the data tell us? So I love that you said we're trying to find the right data, because if you, you guys saw this morning, consumer confidence trends came out. 
And August, last month when we were talking to clients, we said, hey, you know, just watch out because consumer confidence is at the lowest level since the pandemic started, lower than March and April. We were like, what are consumers telling us? And then today, of course, September came out the highest level since the pandemic hit. So I think right now consumers are going through the same whiplash as industry analysts. It depends on the day, the data, the trend, and you get a completely different story of where the economy is. So how important, though, is all of that consumer sentiment ultimately on additional stimulus we get from the pandemic, especially if we continue to see the economy having to remain in some kind of lockdown state if we start to see more waves? Um, Talk to us a little bit about that and how much of this also is dependent on the jobs environment and whether or not we see people going back to work or continuing to go back to work. Yeah, and I I think that's been one of the surprising things is as we do look at the data, the economy is holding up. I know that there's a lot of talk that it's losing momentum, but it is holding up all things considered. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. And as Jay Powell said at his press conference, we're learning to live with the virus. And as I talk to some of my coworkers across the country, they say life, depending on where you live and depending on how you're thinking about the virus, looks pretty normal. But the concern at this point is that the easy gains have been made. Uh, As you mentioned with the jobs, yeah, we're still adding jobs, but we're 11.5 million people shy of February in the labor force. And that doesn't account for the 3.7 million people that have just ultimately left the labor force since February. And that's one of the biggest things because a lot of people are stepping out for childcare reasons. So let's talk about something that we have talked a lot about on this program, and I, I'm dying to get your take on it, Allie, which is the K-shaped recovery. It, it When you said uh, something a minute ago about sort of depends on who you are, where you live, what your job is, that calls to mind this idea of the K-shaped recovery. Give me your reaction to that notion and that description of this recovery that we're in, whatever it may look like. The K-shape is the reason we do not have another stimulus deal, because if you look at the stock market and you look at the unstoppable housing market, there are parts of the economy that why do you need to give them additional money? And I think a lot of economists, myself included, said, oh, gosh, watch for the end of July. We're going to really see the economy tank. And it's held up, all things considered. So that's been one of the biggest issues. But As we're seeing today, Pelosi and and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin are looking at maybe getting closer to a stimulus deal, but they have to be careful because I agree with the Republicans. We don't need another two to three trillion because we already have trillions of dollars sloshing around in the economy. But I agree with the Democrats that it needs to be targeted because if you're in a K-shaped recovery, don't keep giving money to top half of the K and expecting a different result. You need to make sure that that bottom half of the K is getting the right money when they really need it. Well, how important, and let's talk about this, that bottom part of the K, how important is it ultimately to the U.S. economy? We, you know, ad nauseum talk about the importance of small business uh, owners and small businesses to our economy. You know, are we providing enough aid for that part of our economy? No, we're not providing enough aid right now. Mm -hmm. And I think another one of the issues is if you look at the savings rate, if you were in the bottom half of the K and you were getting that extra $600 federal federal stimulus, we know the stats, about 60% of people were earning more money by being on that unemployment insurance. They've been able to save some of their money. So when you look at the personal savings rate, that looks okay, but that's going to start coming down. And that's coming down partly 
because the top half of the K is going out and spending money, but partly because the bottom half of the K is now starting to run out. They're starting to tap into their savings accounts, and that's not unlimited. That's not going to go on indefinitely. So we have to look at uh, what's the top up to the unemployment insurance. I know there's that joke about the lazy economy giving the 600. So, okay, fine, do the 300. But make sure you're also giving money to the state and local governments, to small businesses, to people on the rent and mortgages so they don't end up homeless. So there still is, just needs to be a really, really targeted effort. What happens if we don't get that? What, what does it look like and how soon do we see it, Allie? Well, the economy is going to backpedal, but it's not going to happen that quickly. Uh, again, that's kind of been the lesson learned to all of us. Is yeah. When you throw $3 trillion into an economy that only slowed for two months, that actually can keep you going for a while. So I don't think we're going to see that backpedal. We'll see the savings start to go down. We'll see the amount of people unable to pay their rent or pay their mortgage start to increase. But that's going to be a slow burn maybe the next six months. Yeah, I mean... I just feel like it's just a tricky, tricky moment. Listen, the debate tonight just got 30 seconds. What do you want to know on the economic front from Biden and from Trump? Just quickly. Are they able to bring back bipartisan politics? Are they able to put things aside and actually make sure that we don't backpedal in the economy? No, no. Yeah. I mean, really, really, Allie, what do you want to know? <laughs> I mean, let's be real. <laughs> um, Hope springs eternal, Allie. We really appreciate it, as always. Allie Wolf is chief economist for Myers Research. She joins us on the phone from Irvine, California. Some really nice analysis there of the K-shaped recovery and sort of how we need to be thinking about it. And she's exactly right. The K-shaped recovery is why we haven't gotten more stimulus. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. In this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week Small Business Survival Guide, TikTok, many small business owners, man, who took part in the Paycheck Protection Program, they got loans as part of the pro program. They are watching the clock because they're now waiting on the forgiveness of those loans. Let's talk about that with Bloomberg News Editor Demetra Cassaniti. She's joining us on the phone on this Tuesday. Man, that program was a lifeline for many, but I think some of them are now nervous. Oh, yeah. Some of them are very nervous right now. There were millions that applied for it. You know, about $525 billion was disbursed in aid. And from the beginning, one of the things that was really emphasized with this program was that m many of these loans would be forgiven, provided that you met certain criteria. And that, you know, we, we still believe that that will be the case. But of course, as we've experienced with this program from the very beginning, there have been many delays. There are questions now about whether new programs are going to be approved by Congress in the coming weeks. So many lenders are encouraging small businesses to hold off on submitting the forgiveness applications. But, you know, when you're confronting loans of any amount, you know, it, it could be $150,000. You're a very small business. It could be double that amount, you know, and you're thinking that it's not an amount you can pay back. It's really causing a lot of anxiety right now. And so what is it's – a, it's a great piece by Nick Leiber that uh, is available via the terminal and, and businessweek.com and through the Small Business Survival Guide. Uh, Demetra, what I mean, what can they do, what, especially because we're all sort of waiting for more stimulus? What's the playbook here? Sure. Well, um, you know, we have a number of – several pieces of advice, uh, Nick – interviewed Chris um, Levy. He is the senior vice president at one of the CS 
excuse me, CDFIs, you know, we've talked about these a lot, community development financial institutions. Uh, and this is a person who has a lot of experience with these loans. So the advice from Chris and from others that Nick has talked to is, you know, first, you really do have to just kind of take a step back, take a deep breath and be patient. But use the time right now because um, Pursuits, which is the name of the company Chris Levy works for, and other institutions and lenders are not yet processing these applications. Hmm. The reason they're not is because they are anticipating that Congress is either going to approve another PPP-like program or they're going to pass some other legislation. There's broad bipartisan support for a handful of programs that are going to better define the terms of the forgiveness, which is going to make the application process easier. So that is a point to emphasize, that if you're patient and if we hold off on actually submitting right now, it'll save us having to resubmit, having to refile documents, so use the time to gather up all the information you're going to need, you know, uh, the information about your payroll, about your rent, about what the other expenses were that you spent the PPP on. Read up on what the various changes have been over the last few months with PPP, either from the website of your own lender or from many other resources that exist out there on the Internet. And then be prepared to have a process that's going to go a little more smoothly once they say, yes, okay, now we're ready to process these applications. So um, it's, tr- it's tricky because it's testing, it is testing people's, you know, patience. And again, you're anxious and you think, well, what you're telling me is I just have to wait. You know, that, that really doesn't sound, patience? that's not a good answer. But there's so many intricacies here and there are so many rules and regulations that changed over the last few months. So it's really good for a small business to become as knowledgeable as they can and to really then also consider going forward, let's say there are going to be new programs, to really consider what's maybe going to make the most sense for them in terms of what their needs are going to be, uh, because this is a process that, of course, will inform that and will help them. Well, and what, you know, if there's a lesson here, right, as you guys write in this story uh, and as Nick reports, I mean, this whole program has evolved as this this situation has gone on, and that's something to keep in mind. Exactly. I mean, you know, I think that, um, in, in not in haste, but, you know, somewhat hurriedly, the program was put together because of the great need. An agency that typically deals with a fraction of the number of things that the SBA has been dealing with has been inundated with all kinds of applications and other uh, matters that they need to deal with. So, You know, it does take time. Also, you know, once you submit that application, there is is still a waiting period. There's a 10-month period that they uh, can, uh, you know, that the SBA can take to make a determination. Then, you know, so you do have to accept that there's a lot of time built into this because of volume and number of applications and, again, factors that might change. There are, you know, categories that haven't been very well defined. Some lenders have said, that now they're reading that the PPP forgiveness, if you also received the other type of loan that we've written a lot about, the EIDL loans, the Economic Income Disaster um, Loans, um, that that amount then must be deducted from what you received from PPP, and you'll get forgiveness on that amount, right? right. On, the, on the PPP minus the IDL. That seems to be news to many people who are now handling these situations. So there's further clarity emerging on the way that this is being approached. And I don't think, you know, I mean, we have to believe that this is really born again of just so much that everybody is dealing with and an attempt to really just be as clear 
right. as they can be one. Right. And, and it all happened so quickly. I mean, it if you think about it. so fast, so, <laughs> so fast. And yeah, we knew that things were not maybe going to go super smoothly. Demetri Kessinides, thank you so much. Check out more of those stories, stories just like this, at the Small Business Survival Guide at Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Let's check in with our buddy Aaron Kennan, co-founder and CEO of Clear Harbor Asset Management, managing approximately $800 million. He joins us on the phone from Stamford, Connecticut. Aaron, how are you? What's going on over in Stamford? Well, uh, th- things are fine here. Thanks for asking, Jason. I hope, hope all is well in the city. Right. I know the last time we talked to you, we were kind of... We I went down a rabbit hole. We did, because we were blown you away did. because you were in New York. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I remember. I came on to talk about the market, and I ended up talking about real estate I, in Connecticut, I, guys. I Thanks. I can just see your media team like, um, Aaron, um, that was that was really good, but um, you were Aaron, there to talk about the Aaron, we're sorry that we did that to you, but um, you know those I guys... The state of Connecticut, out of I think the state of Connecticut was quite happy with it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the state of Connecticut was, was probably The governor called you. you up and said, yeah, thank exactly. you very much. But let's... Listen, I have to tell you, Jason and I, after that conversation, talked so many times about that conversation because you guys were very definitive. You were in New York and you made a change. You are now in Connecticut. You're outside the city and you're being very open, right, with your employees about how they want to work. Absolutely. You know, flexibility is is the key uh, in, in any marketplace. And we wanted to get ahead of this. We also wanted to bring back our team. And so we have our team back here. Not everyone is here every day. But, um, you know, I believe in the collegiality of, of sort of working in a live setting and, and people wanted to get back to work and they didn't want to use public transportation. So, mm. you know, we acted quickly and I think it ultimately was to the benefit of our clients. Um, and I'm really excited about, you know, where we are now and it's great to see my colleagues every day. So as you are talking to those colleagues, I would imagine like everyone else, you're talking about the, the state of the world. And I would imagine that today around the water cooler, if there is one, although probably in COVID times, that's not a good idea. But we're all looking ahead to the presidential debate tonight. And even if nobody's mind really gets changed, we are reminded that we are in the thick of this very contentious election we're less than 40 days to go. How do you figure that into the investment thesis here? Well, it, it's it's fascinating. I think this will be the most watched um, debate on, on television in, uh, forever uh, since 1960, since we started watching these debates. Um, and I, I think there's a lot at, at stake um, at, at some level, at a political level, but also at an economic level, um, at a regulatory level. Um, I think strategically, at a political level, my sense is that Vice President Biden has more to to lose um, because he's ahead in the polls um, mm. in some of the key battleground states. Um, he seems to be, you know, leaning uh, ahead in in the polls, and so if he trips up, um, I think it could potentially alter uh, the the outcome and and you know sort of reconfigure our thinking around um, what 
2021 looks like from a policy perspective. But I would also uh, keep in mind the, the Senate race, I think, is really uh, perhaps uh, just as important if one believes that a balance of power in Congress is helpful to the overall economy. And um, that's a close race. I mean, there are races in Michigan, Montana, Maine, South Carolina that are all extraordinarily close. And um, I, I would argue that those are, are, are just as critical. What's yeah, really those important? Those down ballot are, are, are critical. You're exactly right, Carol. What I do wonder, too, though, Aaron, is that, you know, Jason and I have talked a lot about there's two stories going on. If you're an investor in the market, like there are things, or you're an investor in general, or you're at the higher end of the income scale and wealth scale in America, you are seeing a different economy and world right now versus those at the bottom. And I think that is at the core of this election. Like who who ultimately gets heard? Is it major publicly held corporations or is it small business on Wall you know, on Main Street? Like I, I feel like there's that divide. And so yeah. I don't know. What's a priority to you? I mean, you're an investor, right. you know. <laughs> well, you know, that that's a good point, Carol. I, I, I have been hearing a lot about this K shaped recovery and mm-hmm. while I think there's a lot of merit to it, as I look at the market, there's almost a K shaped like um occurrence within the public equity market. So you look at, you know, sectors of of the equity markets like technology that are up uh, 27% year to date um, as artificial intelligence grows as the the race to the cloud proliferates um, as 5G rollout continues and so a lot of great tailwinds for those companies and their employees of course uh, and shareholders contrast that with energy where you've had a, a huge demand shock um, financials, where loan growth is extraordinarily tepid, and those sectors are down uh, 50% and 22%, respectively. I'm just looking at the screen right now as I talk. Right. Um, and so I think it speaks to sort of you know how in the the real economy, which is your question, is really um, very much being reflected um, in in the public equity marketplace. And so. Pandemic aside, or maybe there's no such thing as pandemic aside, maybe election aside, uh, what do you look at over the next 60 days if you can sort of set the election aside? Well, <laughs> we, we've come a long, long way since the March 23rd low in the equity market, since the Fed has entered uh, the scene and expanded their balance sheet, yeah. and since all of the various fiscal uh, proposals have been enacted in, in, the, in the trillions of, of dollars. And we did see that massive decline in GDP, about 33, about 32, 33% Q2. I would expect a significant uh, rise in GDP in Q3, maybe 32, 33, maybe even more uh, on the upside. And so the question, in the midst of having grown debt to GDP at the public sector level so significantly just this year, um, and and the balance sheet having expanded at the Fed by 90% on an annualized basis, is sort of this question around, are, are, are we, did we just experience a deep, dark recession, and are we in this new sort of expansionary economic phase, which we could, historic, history would suggest, last for five to ten years? Huh. Or are, are we entering a, a period of, of tepid growth because we've just put up in place massive debt loads on, onto the, the yeah. public sector uh, and to some extent, the corporate sector, and you know, time time will tell. I mean, there there are reasons why uh, one would argue that the glass is half full or half empty there. But as an advisor to clients, I would just say we really focus on the things that are in our control, and that is ultimately, you know, 
what's the right asset allocation for the client? Do they have the right risk tolerance reflected in that asset allocation? What are their long-term goals? How do we structure their portfolios in their financial life to achieve them, regardless of whether we're entering that new bear market or new bull market? Yeah. Lots to keep an eye on. We really appreciate it, Aaron Kennan. See, we stuck to the markets this time, this more or less. This team is going to be happy this They're time. They're going to be happy this time. All right, Aaron <laughs> Kennan, really good to catch up with you. Co-founder, yeah, CEO of Clear Harbor Asset Management. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.